This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams, and you're listening to Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Scott Langa, and he and his father, uh, Harry Langa, wrote a book called The Watchmakers. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, Scott, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Ariel. I really appreciate it. So, a few years ago, did you think that you were going to be on a uh, timepiece interest podcast? The interest from the watch world in my book has come as a complete surprise. Uh, maybe as it, maybe it shouldn't have because of the title, The Watchmakers, but I had just never considered that angle seriously until I started speaking with Mike, Michael Clarizo about it. Okay, so for, so when you have been putting together, you know, we're going to talk about this for years and years, this interesting uh, and meaningful story about the Holocaust, you sort of never thought to yourself, this would also be interesting to this group of people that are interested in watchmaking. It's very, it's very true. I grew up in a uh, family of watchmakers from for generations, and it just seemed like the uh, the pond that I grew up swimming in. So I never thought about that as being the most significant part of the story. I know this actually fast forwards a little bit, but did you yourself ever pick up watchmaking? Because you know. Uh, for, with your father, it was very much a practical art. And today it's, you know, not something that you would necessarily encourage your, your, your son or your daughter to go into because it's, you know, it's not like that's where all the jobs are. You can squeak by, but for you, did you dabble in professional watchmaking at all? And if, if so, and if not, why not? Well, I, I didn't, and I didn't really become interested in watchmaking until I was deep into writing this book. I, uh, I, I guess you, we could understand watchmaking for my father as a kind of arc, like Noah's Ark, that carried him through the chaos and the deluge of uh, the Nazi occupation of Poland and the concentration camps. And it, it gave him a kind of uh, card that he and his brothers could play to influence their fate. And uh, it, it gave them a safe space during that chaotic, extreme situation where they could do precision work and, and stay focused on something. Uh, when my father, uh, after the war, after he and his brothers survived, and uh, to carry the analogy forward, the Ark landed in the United States, which was this land of unbelievable, unlimited opportunity. He continued to live in that Ark because that was a, you know, a safe space for him. And that was his livelihood is how he got his first jobs. And it was his way to get a little piece of the American dream. As for me and my brothers, we looked at that arc as being kind of limited, and we wanted to uh, branch out and explore everything that uh, growing up in the United States had to offer. So we, we really saw it. We associated watchmaking with that old world mentality that my father carried with him through his life. 
that's that's a lot to unpack there. So it's it's sort of interesting how watchmaking today is making a comeback for a lot of different reasons in the past. What are you know you you you're in business. I we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what you do. What is your perception of the current state of watchmaking today? Is it something that you've you've looked at into? Like, are you sort of surprised it's robust as it is? Is this kind of you know strange to you, like something the Amish people do? Um, you obviously have a family history in this, but I'm just curious as someone who doesn't come at this from sort of a watch nerd perspective, like what are your perceptions on this whole funny world of making watches today? So I'll answer it by by uh, by con by way of contrast. So when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, the mechanical watchmaking seemed like it was going to be a thing of the past because there were quartz watches, electric watches, and the uh, mechanical watch seemed like it was in decline. And that was my father's perception, too, is that... that and that was the conversation at home. I didn't mean to cut you off, but like that's something he said. He's like, sons, I don't think this is going to be something that you want to go into, right? Or like, how did it go? Well, he never, uh, he never pushed watchmaking on us. He thought that, you know, we had uh, many other opportunities that we could pursue. And, but for himself, he thought that watchmaking was on the decline as a trade. Now, what I, uh, I, I recently visited Watches and Wonders and uh, the, uh, I was uh, astounded at the, the quality and the refinement and the, the, the technical prowess and the, the art that goes into mechanical watches now. So the resurgence has uh, been a, a, of this craft has been a fascinating thing for me. And I, and I look at these timepieces and for for me, these are profound symbols uh, that I relate to my father. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that the, the sentiment you have with watchmaking is so different, so different than that of many people because of that that family relationship and all that. But let's talk about some of the, the the bigger story here. Your father wasn't just a watchmaker, but he was someone who was in a fortunate position that he happened to be in a very unfortunate position with a bit of a with, with a bit of a trump card, a bit of a special power. He was in the Holocaust. I have family members in the Holocaust. And as the story goes, uh, it was discovered that he had watchmaking skills and he was am amongst a, a few others. And they used their watchmaking skill as a currency to help them survive, you know, uh, a little bit better than others, obviously in still terrible conditions. But watchmaking allowed them to get through this awful period that took the lives of so many family members. And, and that is your legacy. That is your legacy is to tell uh, not just the story of, of a, good, a, a nice story, an optimistic story about survival, but to help remind through these individual stories about the other atrocity that we need to prevent, which is the Holocaust, right? Absolutely. And, and, and from I, ever happening again. <laughs> yes. So it would never happen again. And so uh, so we don't get fooled again. That's It's funny how relevant that is today, oddly enough, which when you started collecting these stories, when you started with, you know, recording uh, your father's 
stories and testimony and things like that. You mentioned that you did 37 hours of recording. Did you have any idea that the world would need to be reminded of this message so very much by the time it came out? Well, the way this goes to the reason why I started recording him in the first place in, in the, in the 1970s, late seventies, uh, there was a, a Holocaust denial movement that sprung up, and the um, the response to that among survivors like my father was to organize and to make sure that their stories were told. And there were um, groups that formed in all the major cities in the United States and, and Canada, also in other places, to do this. And my father did ten hours of interviews with somebody at the St. Louis Holocaust Museum um, in the mid-80s as part of that effort. And when I read the transcripts from those interviews, I thought to myself, well, why did the interview, why did the interviewer ask this? And why didn't she ask that? And I wanted to be in the game. So I uh, so I was very much conscious that I was doing these interviews to create a family legacy so these things would never be forgotten and so we would understand how to prevent them from having, happening again. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I think it's sort of very important for people because I think it's less and less people are aware of that. But talk about that effort to sort of record it because it's very true that oddly enough, even though this, these types of situations in human history are so egregiously bad and so obvious, the moment it leaves living memory, it's sort of like you can make this plausible argument that never happened. It totally happened. But like when no one remembers it, like somehow society gets away with tricking enough people to think it never happened. It's very strange, right? Yes. Forgetfulness is one thing, and it's excusable. It's the it's the willful effort to block something out uh, for cynical, manipulative reasons that is is so horrible. And we see that uh, all the time. People who know very well that they're lying will uh, will deny. That historical events occurred for political reasons, and they will convince other people who who don't know who don't know any better, and then it becomes uh, can snowball into the big lie. I want to try to put into context for people what being a watchmaker would have been like, you know, in in the 1930s and the 1940s, um, because I think people need to remember that it's not like today where you're like you know, a, a luxury product uh, mechanic, right? That's like, that's not really what it was. Being a watchmaker was interesting because one, it was very portable. You could take this skill and ostensibly go anywhere in the world because, you know, watches more or less all work the same. And you could, you could take that trade and make a living anywhere. So it was for the, it was very migratory type of position sometimes. And it was a lot like being a car mechanic or, or maybe a, an air conditioner mechanic or something like that. Whereas Average person didn't have a whole lot of timepieces at their disposal, uh, especially owned by them. They were they were quite expensive. And when your watch broke or wasn't telling time properly, you were like at a pretty significant disadvantage. And needing to know the time was, you know, up there, especially in military sense or business sense or things like that. So if you were a watchmaker and you had the ability 
to fix these things, you could uh, prevent someone from having to buy a new one, which would be very expensive. You could get something to work that didn't and sell it. So you could like make money out of nothing. And you could ostensibly always get a job at a jeweler or a, a facility, you know, that just needed sort of ongoing watch repair or watchmaking or something like that. There was a lot that could go into it. So it was a very handy job. It wasn't an easy job, but it was a very handy job. How would you sort of add to or, or change that based upon your, of course, your very personal experience with your father? I think that's really a, a very good description. Uh, and, and I would add to that that the vast majority of the watchmakers in Poland uh, before World War II were Jewish men. And so when the, uh, when the Germans uh, uh, invaded and occupied Poland, they were plundering all kinds of things, including watches. And the soldiers were pilfering those watches and trading them among, among each other. And so uh, the, uh, the only place where they could have access to watchmaking skills after they had evacuated towns and put everybody in slave labor camps were the few watchmakers that were able to uh, carry some tools with them into that world. And my father and his brothers were in that category. But the question I think that you were asking was, what was watchmaking like in the 20s and 30s before the war? And yes, it was very much a uh, lower little lower middle class tradesman kind of uh, in, in lower middle class. My my father uh, grew up in abject poverty uh, because his uh, uh, his his family fell on some hard times, and so they were living hand to mouth through my grandfather's watchmaking skills on a day-to-day basis. And I think a lot of it was also these tools, right? The tools and the skills together were everything. And it wasn't the only job out there, but you know, these tools were things that you made yourself or that were passed down, were difficult to get. And these tools are relatively portable in the scheme of tools. You know, auto mechanic tools aren't necessarily as portable. Um, I guess jeweler's tools are, are very, very similar. But you sort of had to have the skill, and then you had the tools, and then, like you said, you could you could squeak by a, a family in in you know even even poor conditions with this. Um, why did it appeal mainly to to Jewish men? Because you're right, you don't sort of hear about uh, it being such a democratic kind of job. There seem to be certain types of people that have always sort of fallen into you know fallen into this type of role. I really. Uh... You know, I, I haven't studied the sociology of of the phenomenon of watchmaking enough to to draw some real conclusions. But my sense is that there were uh, a limited number of professions that were were open to uh, uh, to Jewish people in those in those years, and so watchmaking was like in my father's town. The major industry industry was shoemaking. And most of the people in the town were employed in that industry in one way or another, either cutting leather or making uppers or bottoms for shoes. So watchmaking was viewed by my father and his grand and my grandfather as being a more refined uh, kind of technical uh, profession 
or trade, I guess you'd call it, that uh, was was somehow a little bit higher up on the food chain. But they weren't thinking about uh, going to university or uh, becoming, uh, uh, you know, joining, uh, becoming doctors and lawyers, etc. Right, right. No, I think it's just interesting to talk about because today being a watchmaker is such a different job. Even if you do some of the same things, it's a very different job from what it was back then. And watches in general were very different. You know, we have these watches that if you're a collector, you know, these classics that are very valuable today, these Rolex military watches and chronographs and things like that that just go for these obscene amounts of money. But they were not luxury objects back then. They were tools for the most part. They may have been good tools, but they were still just tools. And the idea of your rank-and-file timepiece that, you know, wasn't gold or decorated as being a luxury object is very much a modern uh, phenomenon. But without this sort of new era of, of watches as luxury items, I think we both agree that the industry just wouldn't exist anymore, right? It was, it was saved because it became an enthusiast pursuit. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. The the utilitarian uh, requirement of having a, a timepiece that sits on your wrist can be solved much more cheaply now uh, with a, a you know a, a digital watch than it can with a, a mechanical watch. So I think the 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 luxury of it, the the art of it, is goes to what watches symbolize. And the uh, the you know the wearable art concept of the phenomenon. So let's talk a little bit more about the story and and your father. And we talked about how you spent a lot of time doing these interviews and collecting the information. Going forth and writing a book is a big deal. It's hard to do. It's 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 quite a challenge. And I'm sure along the road you asked yourself a bunch of times, why am I doing this? What is the point I'm trying to get across? Now that it's all done. What is the point you feel that is expressed most strongly uh, once you finish the book? Um, so, so by the way, I never questioned the reasons why I was was doing this. It was uh, this this book has been chasing me my entire <laughs> adult life. Uh, okay. So, it, it, at some point, it finally caught me in my mid fifties, um, and we can talk about how and why that happened. But what what I would really hope that readers would get out of it is to connect with my father's resilience and his initiative, and especially initiative. He and his brothers were um, were ordinary people, regular guys who had made a commitment to their core values and to each other. And time and time again, they did the simple hard thing when faced with the most extreme circumstances. And that opened up inside of them a resilience and tenacity that they never knew existed. And they, my father and his brothers set a, a powerful example that calls to the um, hidden capabilities that are in all of us. And, uh, you know, every day they, they struggle to maintain a single-minded focus to stay together for that day and to do whatever they could to survive. Now, I think that begs the question: What are some examples of that resilience? You know, you, you know, I got I got to hear some anecdotes. I want to hear a little bit about what your father was like. So, you know, maybe 
you can offer one story from the book that demonstrates both his character and you know this this matter of resilience that you're that you're sharing. Sure, I, I, and I'll I'll tie it into um, something that you mentioned before about uh, the skill of watchmaking and the tools. So in in September of 1942, my my grandfather was named Michoel. He got a tip from a local Polish policeman, the captain of the Polish police, who was his friend, that the next morning the Germans were going to round up all of the Jews of their town and send them away on a train. And he told my grandfather, if you love your sons, make sure that they escape this night before 8 p.m. So in a heart-wrenching scene of tears and prayer, my grandfather sent my father and his two brothers off with a suitcase full of watchmaking tools and told them where he was going, he wasn't going to need those tools. That they're young, that they should take them, and uh, maybe they will, it will help them. So sad. So sad. And um, my father and his brothers escaped that same night. Those watchmaking tools bought their lives over and over again in the slave labor camps and uh it uh and but but even more than that those tools were a kind of uh amulet that uh were a direct connection to their father's tears and prayers and his uh you know an emotional connection that gave them strength and when they arrived in auschwitz and those tools those precious tools were taken away from them right away my father made a watchmaker screwdriver by grinding the the tip of a nail. And he made a, a pair of tweezers from a spring and a rusty old pair of earmuffs he found. And with those two tools, he was able to um, take apart a watch and fix it and put it back together as long as they didn't need new parts. So he's very resourceful. That's 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 clear. Now... Throughout this journey, uh, it would seem that he and you know brothers needed extra parts and things like that. Were there instances where these uh, you know the, the the German soldiers who needed who who they were bargaining with would go out there and get things that would supply things for them? Did they have a workshop at some point? I'm I'm just sort of trying to get understand. The economy of how some of this went because it, it must have been more than just making the you know ma- doing watchmaking and fixing they had to get spare parts and some economy of watches coming in that they could you know break apart for you know uh, spare parts and things like that uh, did anything like that ever happen so i i think th- there is a story that i'll tell you that that uh relates to this this issue but the answer the simple answer to your question is no they they didn't have a uh, any kind of an organized way to get watch parts. They did have, uh, they, there were watchmaking workshops in many of the slave labor camps, including Auschwitz. And in those camp, in those workshops, they did have uh, regular tools and, and parts as well. But my father uh, never worked in one of those workshops. He was always uh, doing watch work uh, on his own. And if watches needed parts, 
for the most part, they would say it can't be fixed. Let us keep the watch for parts. And they would take parts from other watches and use them to fix. It's important to understand that the, it, the, the watch, the, the black market watch economy in the slave labor camps and the concentration camps was fueled by a flood of uh, plundered watches and people were trading them kind of like a currency. And so it, it, if one watch didn't work, they would just get another one. Right. And they would just they would take, you know, they would take them for spare parts and things like that, which is common. Right. Right. And in that way, by the way, my father and his brothers were able to accumulate four working watches in Auschwitz for themselves. And they uh, they used those watches to trade, you know, they in situations to to make good on their promise to stay together. How many years did they spend in Auschwitz? In Auschwitz itself, they arrived in July of 1944, and they were run out of Auschwitz on a death march at the end of January of 1945. But um, it's it's important for the the view, the audience to understand that my father and his brothers were in Poland, so they were in uh, in Poland when the Germans invaded in 19. 19- in September of 1939. And by the time they got to Auschwitz in July of 1944, they had already been face-to-face with the German occupation of Poland for more than four years. And during that time, you said things like slave labor camps. Were there times where they were on the run? You know, what was, it sounds like a grueling, you know, grueling several years. Yeah, it was amazing. They were, uh, they were, my father was in Warsaw when the war started. And so he was there during the early days of the occupation and the, the, uh, closure of the Warsaw ghetto. And he was working for a watch parts, uh, company inside the Warsaw ghetto. The Germans allowed them to continue operating because they needed watch parts, as, as you had alluded to before. But when, his employer could no longer continue to employ him because it was getting too hard. He gave him um, uh, 500 zlotys that he could use to buy false papers to escape from the Warsaw ghetto and go back to his hometown of Kuznets. So that's what he did. He was able to actually escape from the ghetto, and then he was there during the, the, the ghetto times of his hometown before he... Uh, escaped from there. And after that, they were in slave labor camps and in concentration camps. I'm sure many times during your interview with your father, you asked him about his emotions and and how he kept going and things like that. And um, there must have been many instances where he, like many people, would just want to give up. The, The odds are so not in your favor. You know, it's everything is an uphill climb every single day. One can guess that maybe it's being amongst others that need you that, you know, maintain your sanity and keep you going. But what did he report were his motivations? What kept him going? What kept him making want to survive and see another day? What really kept him going was the uh, promise that he and his brothers made to each other that they would stay together no matter what happened and at any cost. Uh, In addition to that, what he said was that the the poverty of his childhood and the 
austere religious discipline that his father imposed on him and his brothers that they resented when they were kids really turned out to be a kind of survival training that enabled them to keep their emotional balance in the most extreme circumstances and even to do acts of uh, kindness and charity for others when they seemingly had nothing for themselves. And it was always this, this serving a higher purpose and, and ironically maintaining optimism and hope that got them through. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Talk a little bit about that sort of austere religious upbringing. Um, you know, today in sort of modern Judaism, you don't really tend to think a lot of those concepts uh, very much. Um, there are, of course, you know, plenty of Jews that, that grow up in poverty and things like that. But I think it's interesting to consider like that that's sort of a, a foreign concept, at least for many people today, what were some of the rules that they had? What were some of the things that that marked their youth that would have made them, you know, especially capable to withstand uh, something that required that discipline? I, I'm just curious because again, it's 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 not something that that I've immediately seen with my own eyes. So my my father had a really tough childhood. His his mother died in childbirth when he was just four years old. Oh, wow! And his um, his family fell into a cycle of poverty that they could never get out of. And he and his brothers had a tough relationship with their father. Where their father was, um, you know, he he was really down on his luck and was strict and impatient. And he was a single, he was a single dad. And he was, uh, they were growing up in a Hasidic uh, environment. And my grandfather, Michoel, he really, uh, relied on his Hasidic spiritual practice to contend with the difficulties that he faced in his own life. So there were many times when their family literally had nothing to eat for that day, not enough money to buy a loaf of bread. And my grandfather, Mikhail, would look poverty and hunger in the face and give his last coins away to some somebody who'd come into his watchmaking shop begging for charity and incredible he would tell his kids that that god would provide and he thought that he was teaching them how to walk the true spiritual path but it was too much for for his kids my father used to run outside of the store and cry silent tears and it, it wasn't until later that he understood that that it was it was really 
that kind of uh, austerity, those kinds of things that helped him, conditioned him to be able to face hardship later in a way that he could, uh, you know, not only get through it, but also in some way understand, uh, understand his father. And after the war, when he did come to America, was he still the same kind of poor kid that grew up or did he change a little bit? Because my understanding of my family was that when you grow up that way, you're kind of that way forever. Some people blossomed in interesting ways when they came to America, but a lot of people kept that with them to their death. It's, uh, it's a complex question. I, I think it, it's, it's both things. Uh, and it's and it's relative, you know, relative to where he came from, he uh, completely transformed into a different person. But from the perspective of me having been born in the United States, I always saw my father as reflecting that old world sensibility and that that uh, don't waste sort of uh, attitude that I think a lot of people in the United States have from their grandparents who went through the Depression. But it was even more multiplied for uh, people who went through the Depression in Poland in the 1920s and 30s and then uh, went through the war. Well, you know, the funny thing is, and I just have to say, speaking personally, but first the pandemic and now all this insanity with Ukraine and Russia and all that has made me want to speak to people from the World War II generation so freaking much. And they're not really here anymore. And I feel like I've, I've, I could learn so much from just talking to them about how do you get through these incredible times of uncertainty, unpredictability, worrying. I mean, everyone experiences it differently, but like the world's in a really weird mood right now and for good reason. And all the people that we could go to for mentorship and advice, like literally just died out just, just a bit too early, right? Like just a little bit too early to be useful to us. And it's just, it's shocking to me that, you know, how, how history, again, they say history repeats itself, but, you know, like we just missed out on being able to ask the best people for advice. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Very much so. I, I, I certainly feel the, the, the lack, you know, the loss of my father during these times and, um, and people like my father who had these experiences. But I, I will say that uh, when I was doing the interviews with my father, he, of course, wanted me to understand what happened to him in the war. But because he was telling his story to me as adult son, he wanted me to know who he who he was, who he is as a person. And part of that was as he was telling me the story, he was telling me a lot about how he felt and what he thought and what they knew at each stage of the war. And it's, it's really uh, very, very interesting. I think one of the most interesting things to, to see how little they knew at each stage and how, you know, how they were using the information they had to make rational decisions about the situation. But the reality was so beyond uh, imagination that they uh, they could never have anticipated what they were up against. G- give some examples, because I think it may, I think it's so important. Because again, we look back on history, and it all makes sense. It's all clean. 
you know, did they know when the war was ending? Or is it just all of a sudden it's like, okay, everything's changing now. Like, I, I got to hear some of those details. So, so the war is ending. That's a whole different subject. But the, the, in the middle of the war, when my father came back to his hometown after he had, he had escaped from the Warsaw Ghetto, this was June of 1941, he sat down with his father to hear his thoughts on the German occupation and where he thought it was going. And his father was an optimist. He believed that although with the anti-Semitism and the brutality that they were experiencing among the Germans was, was something that they'd never seen before, he remembered the Germans when they invaded in World War I. And at that time, they were very uh, refined and polite and friendly with the Jewish community and didn't give them any problems. They were much better in that regard than the Russians were. And so he couldn't imagine that the Germans were truly out to destroy the population, uh, the Jewish population in Poland. He, he said, you know, uh, you know, more than half the town we live in is are Jews and, you know, more than 25 percent of the population of Warsaw and Krakow are, are Jews. So what are the Germans going to do? Kill all of us? You know, how could how could they even do such a thing? And and so nobody nobody really could uh comprehend and even and this is this is the most profound thing. After my father left and all of his town was sent away to Treblinka, which is where they packed them in the train and sent them to, there were two guys that escaped. And I won't go into the details of how they did it. It's a bit of a long story. But they escaped and came back to the, labor, the slave labor camp that my father and his brothers were, were at and told them exactly what happened and how the, um, you know, how the industrial murder machine worked. And they understood in September of 1942 that the Germans were systematically uh, uh, annihilating the entire Jewish population of Poland, and one of these one of these guys that came back was somebody my father went to school with, and he uh, trusted him implicitly. But when they moved to an, the next camp, and these same guys were telling their story to the other Jews that were in this slave labor camp, these people refused to believe them. They couldn't imagine that it was possible, and they didn't want to imagine it was possible. That's incredible. I mean, look, it's on a completely different level. But today, you know, as the last few years, we experienced these like global lockdowns. And if you asked, if you polled a bunch of people like, do you think this is going to happen? The vast majority of people have been like, no, or for a very short amount of time. We all sort of know what it's like to have your reality just completely twisted in front of you. And to hear the news that you are targeted for extermination might be so emotionally shocking. Some people can't help but try to deny it, like is the only way of, of absorbing the message because it's just too much to handle if it's the truth. You know what I mean? It's the only reasonable response. It's the only way that you can main some, maintain some sort of optimism. Because otherwise you become an animal. You've just become an animal on the run. And we are, you know, we're domesticated animals. Right. But I, I would getting back to your point about the these last years and the lockdown and the the impact yeah. and the parallels. Yeah. And and you know, I'll I'll even throw the Ukraine into this. 
the mix as well. Of course, of course. What what we saw in, in the 20th century with World War II especially was there were very clear competing ideologies. You had Soviet communism on one side, you had uh, German fascism on the other side, and each one had a very well-articulated long-term vision. They were horrifying, you might not agree with them, but it was really, it was truly a battle of grand ideologies. And in our current, our current world, we really don't have anything that anybody believes in at that, uh, at least in our Western societies, in, you know, at that level. So what is, what has happened, particularly with the, um, with, with cell phones and social media, is that we've all been siloed into these little individualized micro ideologies. And it's, it's, uh, it's a completely different, um, way of, uh, that, that's the real profound uncertainty that I think we face right now. And, uh, you know, when you look at what's happening in Ukraine, there, there's no ideology driving this at all. It's just naked. I want to take a country and, you know, I think I can do it. So I'm going to do it. What do you think your father would have had to say about what's going on right now? Uh, he would have been profoundly disturbed by, by what he's seeing. Um, he told me when I was giving him, doing interviews with him that he didn't want to live through another real war. And to see uh, something like this happening in Europe again, uh, where the the foundations of the post World War II uh, European regime are being challenged, that would have been very tough for him. Now let's go back to World War II and some of these things that they could not anticipate. I, I'm actually so curious about you know, what the ideas and mentalities were about what was going on in the middle. Do you have additional stories about what they believed was happening around them in the middle of the war and especially towards the end? Because, you know, I, I don't imagine most people would have had some type of clear indicator, especially if they're in a camp that, hey, everyone, uh, you know, war's ending soon. It's just a matter of time before you're out of here, right? Like, I don't know that they would have been given such a heads up. They did get information trickled through about what was happening on the Russian front. So they, you know, they knew that the, when the battle of Stalingrad was lost, they'd heard about that. There, they, there were poles that were working, Polish citizens that were working in many of the slave labor camps uh, that were uh, able to filter some small amount of information to them. And also they, they made stuff up and they could see stuff happening in, in front of them. So at some point, for example, the um, in Auschwitz, they stopped gassing people. And when they and, and they blew up the, the, the gas chambers and when they when they heard that that happened, they understood that things were were changing and uh, that the, yeah. the Germans were on the defensive. And then, of course, the reason that they marched them out of Auschwitz in late January on a death march is because uh, the Soviet army was closing in on the Eastern Front and they could hear the, the explosions in the distance. And so they, they had some inkling that the, the, the war was ending and they knew that the Germans were going to lose. And they had, they had 
faith that the Germans were going to lose um, all through the, the war. That was what kept them going, was that hope. But at the end, it was just, can we out outplay the you know, I'll play the Germans, I'll outlive the war and somehow survive. It's sort of like keeping your morals, right? Like you have to believe that not only are, are your morals correct, but your morals will will pervade. And, you know, the the Germans were acting so immorally, even if you were the victim of it, you had to believe that that somehow moral righteousness will win at the end, or at least you have to have hope. Like it's 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 a strong conviction to at least feel that you're on the moral correct side. And it has allowed a lot of people to persist through some, through some really hard times. Did you talk about morality a lot with your father? Yes. It came up in all kinds of ways in the, in the book. The, um, I think the, the most, there's a, a section on kind of the psychology of Auschwitz and, and, and what it was like. That uh, of course the, uh, the prisoners were being treated like uh, like subhuman uh, objects, uh, but my father and his brothers never felt that way. They always felt that the, it was the Germans that were uh, completely uh, morally depraved, and that they they oddly in some ways felt superior to the uh, the their their oppressors in that way. And there was, you know, he said that there was always an option to commit suicide by just grabbing onto the electric wires. But he said, you know, under under Jewish law, you are not considered to be the owner of your your body. So to commit suicide is in some ways uh, an act of murder. And he said, you know, we we weren't murderers, so we. You know, we left it to the Germans to kill us if that was going to happen. But what interesting, but in, in the background of all that, he said that the most important thing was to fight every day to remain optimistic. He, he saw uh, people that as soon as they succumbed to pessimism, they would die very quickly. Uh, you know, he said if somebody is starving and he believes that he's going to get food in a day or two days, he can last longer. But if somebody feels like he's starving and he's never going to get something to eat, he dies faster. So my father said, you know, and this is a quote, he said that, that pessimism is a, is a terrible disease. You have to have optimism all the time. And that's what, that's what got through. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, while not everyone's being shot at all the time, if you're in a war, everyone's a soldier. You you have to fight no matter who you are to get through, to, to get past things. Not everyone's fighting to, again, not be shot. Some people are fighting to get food or to maintain some stability in, in a family life or something like that. But everyone's fighting. And the possibility of giving up is very real for everyone, whether they're physically on the battlefield or just being affected by what's going on in the world. And again, I think a lot of people can relate to that today uh, because we're we're still in a in a global you know a global war, you know, very literally and and metaphorically as we as we fight for some stability and peace. But there's a lot of a lot of things to learn from 
how to get through the Holocaust. I mean, forget the watchmaking part for a second. People today struggling with how to get through things can look at these stories for models on, oh, here's how they got through it. Like, this is relevant stuff. It is relevant, but I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the watchmaking. Uh, and I'll tell you I'm why. saying that's interesting as well. I'm just I'm just saying. Like, no, I know. And, and I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll take it to the next level on, on the watchmaking. Please. Is that the, the watch is a powerful symbol of civilization and and refinement and it's you know it's the it's the perfect it's it's a man-made creation that strikes the perfect balance between the you know the rotation cycle of the earth and the very subjective uh you know the force of gravity and the very subjective concept of time that we have as human beings and uh, on the other hand the the nazi regime was uh, in a headlong descent to moral depravity and were uh, undertaking a monstrous deconstruction of Western civilization. And the ability to fix watches, the ability to approach a German overseer and tell him that you can fix his watch, it was, it was like, uh, you know, here's this, this skinny, starving Jew with a uh, with a nail and a earmuff spring, who's here to prove that that he can fix a watch and maybe even what it symbolizes, right? And, which which and is which is harmony, right? It symbolizes it symbolizes harmony, and and the act of doing that in, in many circumstances would uh, would open up a, a glimmer of humanity in people that were otherwise abject murderers. I want I want to fo- sort of focus on one one final topic here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I, I really hope that people are excited to just dive into the book and, and and learn about some of these stories. But as they used watchmaking and watches uh, to survive as a negotiation um, point um, to barter whatnot, they had to form relationships with people who were the. Germans or other people and things like that. And that level of familiarity um, breeds a level of intimacy and rapport and things like that. Um, What did your father say about the way that some of the Germans spoke or communicated after sort of getting to know them? I'm sure some of them were horrible and and disgusting and uh, uh, people that you easily feel morally superior to. But I'm sure that there was people that, that openly admitted that they felt what was going on was wrong. They were horrified by it. Are there any, you know, stories of, of humanism uh, in in those relationships that they had to foster, uh, you know, with with their captors? So, in one of the slave labor camps, my father and his brothers were put in a uh, a special room that they lived and worked in to fix watches for the commandant of the camp, uh, a guy named Bart. And this guy was a uh, a terrible uh, terrible murderer. Every every Sunday he would uh, select and shoot hundreds of people, and he would. Uh, it was nothing for him to pick up his gun and shoot somebody in the head just for sport. And but every morning this guy would come to drop off watches and pick up watches for my father and his brothers. And over time. My father, he, he sort of uh, took a liking to my father, and he would invite my father 
to take walks around the camp with him. And they would talk about the weather and, and, and watchmaking. My father said he was very, had to be very careful not to talk about anything else because uh, the guy could easily shoot him. But on one of these walks, there was, they saw another prisoner who was moving toward the barbed wire looking like he was going to plan do some escape move. And this commandant raised his rifle to shoot this guy. And my father, just by instinct, touched the gun, moved it a little bit uh, away so it wasn't being aimed and told him, oh, look, the guy's, uh, this guy's uh, going back. He's, he's not trying to escape. We, we shouldn't kill him. And the, this commandant just put down his gun and let it pass and moved on. And that was the most insane, you know, death-defying act that my father could have done by by any reasonable calculation, he would have been shot dead on the spot. I, I can imagine that the strange fear that having a relationship with someone like this would have for your father and for everyone that knew him. I mean, uh, that's a, that's an incredible story. But, you know, he was there for a while. and This wasn't like a week long thing. This is like a long period of time of every day. You know, he's going to be in the wrong mood today and just round us up and just machine gun us down to persist through that, to hold your nerves and to have a sense of humanity. The more you talk about, it, the more I realize that, you know, your father holding on to morals, holding on to a code is what kept him along. And, and, it, and it wasn't as, as it wasn't based upon how people were treating him or how he looked or his environment. It was all in his head. Um, and I think that's a very powerful message for a lot of people who wonder, how should I act towards my my fellow human beings? Absolutely. I, I think that even in times of great confusion, and I think currently we're in a time of confusion, it's the the critical path of response is to double down on your own core values and and do in the moment what you think is right. Now, your father's sadly not around, uh, and, and, and I know that the book came out after his passing. Um, was it clear during his life that the book would come out? Was it sort of a maybe? What did he have to say about it? You know, I'm curious about his thoughts. What, did he wanna, what stories did he want to make sure was in there? I'm sure there's stories he didn't want in there. I'm sure there's a whole, whole conversation you could have about that, right? Right. Uh, but I, I, that, that actually, now that I think about it, that's actually an interesting thing. There, there's a lot, right? Let's just admit, there's a lot that's not in the book. Right. The, uh, particularly in his, his post-war uh, adventures in post-war Europe. But that's, that's another conversation for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> uh, the, my, my, when I was doing these interviews with my father, he was telling everybody that, that we were writing a book. And, and I, frankly, wasn't so sure. I, I wanted to interview him to uh, to get his legacy on tape, and I frankly thought that doing those interviews would be enough uh, because I knew the stories. And I put the uh, interview tapes in a cabinet and let them sit there for 20 years before I, I really started to uh, sit, sit down to write. And what happened was, so in that interim period, my father passed away and I had my own kids. And uh, these were the stories that I would tell my kids as bedtime stories when they were growing up, because I wanted them to internalize 
these values of resilience and initiative before as a family legacy before they started learning the larger history of the Holocaust in school. And um, when they got older and became teenagers, I wanted them to hear these stories directly from my father the way I, the way I had heard them. And it was only then that I understood that the, the material and the volume of material in those tapes was just too big to be accessible to anybody else but me. Uh, my, my daughter, um, Orly, actually started threatening to write this book herself if I didn't. And even wrote kind of a an early version of it for a seventh grade English class. Wow! But because uh, she was really captivated by the stories um, growing up, and then my you know my my older brother Michael um, died, and I caught a glimpse, a cold glimpse of my own mortality, and I understood that I needed to do something with this material, or it was just going to fade away. So that's that's really what lit a fire under my chair. Right, right. Well, I'm sorry about your brother. That is that is um, unfortunate. Um, Thank you. But sometimes we need those uh, those fires under our rears to get us motivated to do what uh, what we put on the back burner. Right. Absolutely. Well, Scott, this has been a great discussion. I just want to remind everyone that the book is The Watchmakers, and it's available on on Amazon. Just look for author Scott Lenga. Uh, Scott, is there any other uh, websites or things that you want to point people's attention to? Well, uh, I would invite everybody to visit my website, which is Scott Lenga, one word, S-C-O-T-T-L-E-N-G-A dot com for more book information and some uh, very cool photographs and uh, some interview footage of my dad. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been a a great discussion. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.